Hey guys, I'm Eric McLean. And I'm Kelly Gramlich. It's time to talk some ACC football. Let's go. everyone to the Graham Lincoln McLean podcast episode 176. Let's go Eric McLean. Shout out to all of our listeners on Sirius XM channel 371, our OGs on Apple podcast. That's still where a lot of our listeners are tuning in. So please keep downloading, subscribing there. And hello YouTube. Our YouTube is picking up. So please go check out YouTube. Uh, Go subscribe. We have some, obviously, clips and full episodes on there, but also some other fun little extras that you're going to want to check out. (laughs) And if you're watching on YouTube, you can tell, even though Mac thought this was like some cool uh, textured wall that we put up, that is a mattress. So uh, we're moving. I don't normally have mattresses leaning up against a wall, but we are moving. And so, Mac, I need to shout out our guys, Tiger Moving who are helping us out. Yes. Every time I have moved in the last like five years, they have moved me. I am a, I am a one moving company person and I'm loyal to Tiger Moving. And I'm going to request that I get the Mack truck. Some people don't realize that Eric McLean has a moving truck named after him. Mac, can you please uh, tell us what this means to you? Um, well, yeah, I'm glad you set it up that way because honestly, that is when I knew... I had taken yep. another level towards being more like Kelly Graham. That's <laughs> I when I knew, truck. like, I I took a step towards superstardom oh. is when there was a giant moving truck with my name across the top and my beautiful bearded <laughs> face from the national championship run on the side of the truck. That's mm. when I knew it was game time. And those guys do such a great job. They, just like you, uh, they've moved me every time. And I've moved yeah. a lot. Uh, let me tell you, I've moved a bunch. And um, they've taken care of it. They've hooked me up. They're the, the absolute best. Uh, number one, the communication. I think that's a big thing, mm-hmm. especially when you're moving pretty far. Uh, luckily for you and I, these next couple moves, they're just right down the street. Yeah. Uh, but when you're moving hours, I mean, you've got to have people that are on top of it, that are going to take care and protect your stuff, that are going to be efficient. They're super strong, good-looking dudes. <laughs> And uh, they get it done. So huge shout out to Tiger Moving, as always, hooking both of us up, KG. For sure. And Mac, last time I moved, I don't think the Mac truck existed yet. I had the Renfro (laughs) truck. Can I tell you, that was the most reliable. That truck was so (laughs) reliable. Oh, reliable. Okay. Okay. I mean, it it wasn't the fastest. Like, it didn't get me there super fast. But, man, it got the job done. I mean, that truck, you can tell that truck has spent time in the film room, Mac. You can just tell. you can just I understand. Tell. And this is I a good understand. segue because we do talk with our guest today <laughs> about Hunter Renfro because he is a huge Raiders fan. And That's right. he's a big Hunter, Renfro, Hunter Renfro fan. Come on. Come on, KG. Our guy Jason Fitz joining the podcast today. You guys are in for an absolute treat because he is he's one of my favorite people. Fitz is he's one of the first guys that I really you know met outside of like the ACC network family, kind of with ESPN. And he just, he does it all. He works his tail off Mm -hmm. for this company. He's all over the place, digitally, socially, and of course, on TV. He's one of the nicest people on earth. Very, very excited for him to be joining us today. Fitz teamed up with Sarah Spain back in 2020 to create the nationally broadcasted radio show Spain and Fitz. 
entertaining listeners with insightful conversation on the day's trending topics and under-the-radar stories. Fitz also nearly hosts every single ESPN digital show. <laughs> he is all over the place, as well as hosting College Football Live, which I think he does a great job with. His story, Mac, there is no one else in sports media that has a story like Jason Fitz. And if you're a country music fan, you are going to love the first 10 minutes of this interview. I was nerding out talking country music with Jason Fitz. So let's get to our guy, Jason Fitz. Guys, I, I want to start with this story, Fitz, because I think it really just tells who you are as a person. And it kind of sets the stage for where I think this interview can really go. So let me take everyone back to Christmas time, 2019. It's my rookie year at ESPN. Uh, we're doing like some type of who's in digital show, social show, and we're over at Gojo's house and it, it's all these stars, right? Like it's just me and EJ, EJ, obviously first round draft pick. He's a little bit different, but I'm just a no name guy walking in here, seeing all these stars like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. So we're doing a show. There was a segment where we were doing like legendary Christmas songs or like top Christmas songs. And so everybody's going, it was getting a little monotonous. I'm like, how can we shake this up? So I say mine and I look dead at Fitz, our guest, welcome and say, hey, Fitz, mine's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Can you sing it for me? And I don't think anyone else knew, bro, that you had, like, bangers, and you just let it rip. So welcome to the show. I'm not going to ask you to sing, but I'm excited that you're here with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And the part of that show I'll never forget other than that was that Mike Golick Sr. was dressed as Santa Claus, which was yeah. such a great idea for the first, like, five minutes. And then you could see he was so uncomfortable because those digital shows for anyone that's never watched them they don't have any commercials so there's never a reset there's never an opportunity to change and so i just remember looking at golik senior the whole time thinking he is miserable and like he's gonna walk out at some point he was the biggest star in the room we're like just keep senior happy so yeah i that that was a fun and memorable moment and you're right like you know, um, when I first started working on the morning show, sometimes on ESPN, they'd ask me to bring in a fiddle, but I don't think anybody knew that I sang too. So, you know, that, that was a, a, a funny moment in life for everybody to turn around at that point. Cause Golics, the, both of the Golics like to tell you that they're great singers and I, I, I love them both, but no, they should, they should stick to talking about sports. <laughs> well, you know, Mac always does his research and I knew this fits. Cause I remember starting to see you probably when I was still in college on like EU and some of those college football shows. And so I remember looking you up and saying, this guy's story is just incredibly unique. So let's go back. Let's start with the music piece of this. You were the musical director and fiddle player. I love a good fiddle for the band Perry, which I mean, the band Perry, uh, if I die young, that song, that's a, I, I'm a big country music fan. So that's so cool to me. So tell us more about that experience and then we'll get to how you got into sports, but was that what you wanted to do initially um, from the Nashville area, I believe? So tell us more about that origin story. Yeah, so no, not at all. Um, I, I, so when I started playing the violin, I was four when I started playing the violin. I grew up as a very little kid in Vegas, and my mom wanted to take piano lessons. And so we lived next door to a guy that had been a piano player for Elvis back in the day. So he came over and started wow. giving mom piano lessons. And my mom is tone deaf. Like nobody in my, my family has any musical ability whatsoever. And so my mom would like terribly play the piano and I would crawl up on the bench and then like play by ear what he was trying to teach her. So everybody was like, look, kid's got a propensity for piano. 
let's get him in piano lessons. So they took me over to like the local school to try and get me piano lessons and they didn't have any piano teachers available. So they said, well, let's stick it. We've got violin teachers open. So let's put them on violin. And I started like Suzuki is a method. A lot of kids start in where you learn to read a little bit and play by ear. And you're supposed to go through a book in in, you know, roughly a month. And I was a year into book one and like still struggling. And my teachers were begging me at that point to switch to piano because they had the teachers available. But I was like, I was always a pig headed kid. So I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to figure it out. If I stop, it's going to be because I don't want to do it. Not because I couldn't get it right. So I, um, I was pig headed and I said, no. So it took me a year and a half to get through book one. And then I went through books two through 10 in the next month. Uh, I like once it clicked for me, it clicked. So um, in Vegas, they there was a retired uh, teacher that had taught at the Royal Conservatory of Music in um, in London, and he had retired there. And a friend knew him, so uh, I went and auditioned for him when I was tiny, and he took me on as a student. And by the time I was eight years old, I practiced eight hours a day every day. Wow. Um, and I uh, uh, there was a, a significant uh, training orchestra they call them like a college age orchestra in Vegas at the time, and. I won the concert master seat in that when I was about nine. So I was like, my, my conductor used to, jo- to joke that I was like a 40-year-old little person, not an actual child, because I just never acted like a kid. But I think for me, it, well, I know it was eight hours a day, every day, went to public school, and um, it, was, it was get up at 3.30 in the morning, practice until you get on the bus, practice, you get home, you can watch 30 minutes of TV, do your homework, and then you got to practice till you get your eight in. And that was... Wow. Monday through Saturday, and we'll get to the sports start of the part of this later. But uh, the part of the reason I do what I do is my dad is a huge Raiders fan. And my dad's rule was you don't practice on Sunday because I don't want to listen to a cat die while I watch the Raiders. <laughs> so my dad and I would sit down on Sundays and get a dozen donuts and watch the Raiders. And that was the only day of the week I didn't practice. So when I was 10, I got into Juilliard in New York and uh, I played Carnegie Hall and I was supposed to be a little classical violinist and uh, I had a world famous teacher and I, I had a lesson, right? Like there's a famous violinist named Joshua Bell and uh, Josh was the lesson after mine every, every week. And um, it was, it was my whole life growing up. And I uh, late in high school, I burned out from uh, wanting to practice anymore. And uh, I'd gotten into Juilliard for college, but I figured out that you practiced a lot less and met more girls if you sang. So I, at that point was, doing some singing with some buddies and uh, we got, uh, we sang at an event and we got uh, discovered by an R and B talent group and they wanted us to be the white boys to men. And this was like 96, 97. So they wanted us to like, right when the boy bands were starting to hit, we got signed by RCA and I thought I was going to be this super famous, you know, singer in a, in a R and B group basically. And um, what was funny is we lost our record deal uh, for no fault of all. We hadn't even put out a song yet. We were in the studio, but that production company had another act come out. They failed. And as a result, we all lost our deals. And that's oh, sort wow. of the way the, the producer on that now is super famous. Like R and B, his name's tank and he's won all these Grammys and like tanks is, but he was like this scrawny Durrell guy back then. But uh, we, uh, we lost our record deal. And we were sitting around and we were like, well, what do we all listen to? What do we really like? And that was the era of like McGraw and Garth. Mm. And and like, that was an era of country that like was really influential, especially at that point I was right outside of DC and like the Maryland area was all in on everything country music. So we were like, you know, know, screw it. We're moving to Nashville. So the four of us moved to Nashville, not knowing anybody. 
And we started singing it like we would call back then. You could find phone numbers for record label execs in these books. And we would call <laughs> and we would just sing on their voicemail. And so I kept getting record deals and getting dropped. Like we, we got signed and dropped so many times I can't count it. And I was wow. playing in the orchestra in Nashville. And I played on a bunch of big studio records for like Matchbox 20 and all this stuff. Like I was using my classical chops while I was trying to make a living singing. And um, I was supposed to go out on a tour as a violinist in a quartet with a, a group called Sixpence, none the richer. And um, there was, a, they had just released kiss me like this huge uh, cover for them. I was about to go on tour and we got signed by capital and capital was like, you, you can't, you can't go. So I had no way to support myself. And we were about to play a show and we were going to have to pay a fiddle player. And I was like, well, this is the dumbest thing in the world. Like I'm not going to pay a fiddle player. I'm a violinist. I can figure it out. So that was like, the transformation for me, but my parents were always so big into classical that it was funny. Like when I started making it and people would go to my mom and dad be like, Oh my God, you must be so proud. My mom's like, no, not at all. This is not what we <laughs> sacrificed our life for. Like he's playing hick music. Like my mom was, my parents were never into country music at all. So like, it, it's funny that the wild ride that it took me, but uh, yeah, I started the band I was in that never made it started playing fiddle for them. And I was lucky that you know, I played a show somewhere and uh, a guy named Phil Vassar saw uh, saw yeah. me and Phil at the time had done really well. And I had just left the band and he was like, hey, I need a fiddle player. Uh, you want to come out for pennies on the dollar? And, and Phil and I are still great friends. And, and that that started my touring life. So I went from Phil to a guy named Easton Corbin um, that had a couple of big hits. And I was out on tour with Easton and the band Perry was opening for us and Blake Shelton. And I saw the band Perry for the first time and I watched Kimberly sing and I was like, yeah, she's, she's a star. This thing's going to be massive. I knew the drummer for years. And I said, Hey, if you guys, they had a fiddle player. And I said, if you ever make a change, I, I would, I would jump on that in a heartbeat. And it was about two weeks later, they got a call and they were like, Hey, we're making a change and can't guarantee you the gig, but you know, here's 17 songs known by tomorrow and uh, we'll see how this things go. So wow. that, uh, and that was right. My first show with the band Perry was on 12 feet of stage uh, on the Luke Bryan, Tim McGraw tour, if I Die Young had just come out as a single, nobody knew a thing. And wow. you flash forward like a year and a half later, and we were playing the American Music Awards and the Billboard Awards and all these things. And I was just looking around thinking, my God, like we made it. And it happened so fast. It was it was a really incredible time. That's a long winded wow. story. Sorry. Wow. No, I love it. I love it. That I'm such a country music crazy. nerd. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. Oh and I God. am now too, by the way, like, I, like, Good. Uh, like Good. I, I, I chose country music. So a lot of like, I didn't grow up on Waylon and Willie. I'll never apologize for that, <laughs> but I did grow up on like Kenny Rogers Christmas record. It was a big deal to me. Yeah. So when like my band that never made it, when we toured with Kenny Rogers for like six months, coolest thing for me so like wow. there were times that people would come and be like you know they, I, I would get my fair share of grief for not growing up on devil went down to georgia and i'm like <laughs> that's okay like I'll, I'll figure that part out but yeah country country music is is has been very good to me i'm very thankful for it have you that's a great kind of segue a little bit have you ever played devil went down to georgia though can you tear it up yeah i mean yes but here's there's two things with devil went down to georgia the man one, went to juilliard uh, yeah i mean one got into juilliard charlie daniels better guitar player than fiddle player no disrespect to charlie wow. but um the other part that's weird to me with devil is like if you go listen to it like the devil won the devil solo is yeah. way cooler than john so like <laughs> i never understood that part i'm I'm watching i'm like y'all really think this is like this is just a guy like flinging a boat but i'll tell you another long-winded story here but i'll tell you like the first time i ever played a fiddle solo in my life and the band that uh, i was in uh, we were playing 
a club two nights in a row and I spent a month because the biggest difference between violin and fiddle, they're, they're the same instrument. The difference is the approach and whether you write, like whether you make it up or whether somebody wrote it for you. Right. So I spent a month working on this solo that was when I say badass, like I was so proud of it. I spent hours and hours working to the bone to play this perfect like violin solo. Right. So I come out in the middle of this song and it's fast and I'm wailing and I'm ready for it. And I'm going, and I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm focused. I play this perfect, perfect solo. And there's a smattering of applause at the end. And I'm like, <laughs> so the what? next night, the next night, same club, same song. I am drunk. Like I'm not drunk. I'm like drunk. I'm past the point of being able to like, I look at it. I'm like, I am not going to be able to manage this at all. I had long hair at the time. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to do what everybody does. I fell down on my knees. I let my hair go wild everywhere. And I played the worst, hackiest, like weren't even notes in the solo. Crowd went nuts. I learned oh. everything. <laughs> like, crowd went nuts. And I was like, okay, I get it. Charlie Daniels was on to something. Like sometimes you just bounce your bow around and let people go crazy. That's it. That's it. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. That That's makes a lot unbelievable. Of sense. That's unbelievable. Okay, okay Mac. So, wait, wait, wait. Before <laughs> we get to the transition from country music to sports, I, I have to nerd out a little more here, Mac. Okay. Jason, as a guy who's worked in the industry, you know country music very well. Give me your personal, we can go top three, top five country acts that you, maybe of all time. Can, um, can we go there? I'm so curious. Yeah, I mean, we can always go there. Um, I, I think when you combine talent with performer with just yeah. the human being, uh, I'm not sure there's a lot of guys better than Keith Urban. Um, and Keith wow. went through so much in his life with addiction that I think we've sort of glossed over and forgotten. And I'll never forget when we were on tour with Keith, number one, it's the only show. It's the only act I've ever toured with that. We sat down and we watched every night's show because he was that wow. good. Like it's the same show over and over, yeah. and over and over again. I don't give a damn. I was watching like his band is spectacular. He's spectacular. I had to watch every note, but what was cool is that when he, uh, and I, I don't think I'm violating any like, rules of trust here, but I, I, I think this is probably known at this point, but when he was backstage at the end of his show, um, it, at that point in his life, when he would, had just married Nicole, what was amazing to watch is, you know, you always see an act go off stage at the end of a, of a show and they wait for the crowd to, to roar for a certain amount of time. Then they walk back out for the encore. It's so contrived in every way. Right. But Keith, uh, that was a trigger for him as an addict where like at the end of a show, he had such a rush. He had to figure out what to do with that momentum and rush. Mm. So he called Nicole every night and would just talk to her until he was calm enough to go out and play the encore. And if that meant that there was no encore, cool. Like he was doing what he had to do to listen to his body and his wife. And I thought that was so cool, like just in a, in a perspective way. And they would also, uh, they would back his bus up to the back of the stage. And at the end of the show, he'd walk right off stage, walk right to the bus and leave. And it was so funny that a lot of people in the venue that didn't know Keith would turn around and be like, well, what a snob. He's walking right off yeah. stage and not saying anything. But for him, it was like, I need to get out of this environment so that I can, I can bring myself back down to where I need to be. So wow. I think like keep the human being also first day on that tour, I'm setting up like, because for the band, I played um, the fiddle mostly, but also played the piano, the organ, a guitar, an acoustic guitar, a dobro, a bunch of other instruments. And so I'm setting my keyboard up because, you know, you don't have people to do that for you most of your career. And like, I look over on the riser and he's like, Hey, I'm Keith. You need anything? And I'm like, I, I know you're Keith. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> and, but I saw him again, I think a year later and hadn't, hadn't talked to him since we left that tour. He remembered my name. He remembered wow. everything about me, which I thought was like, not every headliner is that way. So 
I think Keith, the human being, plus Keith, the guitar player, is just like I could listen to him play all day. Mm-hmm. So uh, I put Keith as an all-timer. Um, for talent and ability, while they're not, I say this with love, the most exciting show, <laughs> I don't know that there's anybody better than Little Big Town, like vocally. Like, oh, I love like, Little Big Town. We, we would go out and watch, like all the guys in the band would go out and watch their sound check to figure out what they were doing vocally. Like they're just, mm. they're that good. And again, their story for anyone that has never heard it, like at one point they lost their deal midway through and a couple of the guys were valets at a local steakhouse in Nashville wearing their hats because wow. they'd had a hit and nobody knew who they were and they were afraid they'd get seen. So like, I have a lot of respect for, for little big town. Um, Kenny Rogers uh, was uh, to me is an all time great. Uh, and also uh, a, an all time educator. Like, we, the first night my band opened for Kenny at the time, we bombed. We were playing uh, the Sahara oh, no. in Vegas. And like, it was this old, like we were these five, you know, like we thought we knew everything, man. And we were so wrong. And we like worked this set and we went out. And when I say bombed, like we didn't even get applause after some songs. And it was like all these, all these grannies that were just sitting there and they're like, and so we're walking off stage. Kenny's standing right there. And he says, come to my dressing room afterwards. I'll tell you what you did wrong. So we went to his dressing room afterwards and he's like, hey, this is a a lesson I I think of in sports all the time. He said, you've got your audience. You performed for yourself Mm -hmm. instead of performing for the people that are here. Hear the type of music, hear the songs that they love. Here's what they want to hear from you guys. And he knew our material from our demo at that point that hadn't been released enough that he'd be like, these are the songs you should be reworking. And he gave us all of this advice. And so we did a lot of acapella work and a lot of of acoustic work. We pulled an all-nighter. And the next night, same casino. We did exactly what Kenny said. Crowd went nuts. Standing ovation. Wow. They were, and he was right. And so, like, I think that, like, and, and when I decided to leave the band I was in, it was Kenny that actually called me. It was like, hey, here, you're going to leave the band. I just wanted to talk you through it and make sure you're really comfortable with the decision and tell you how wow. I went through that process when I did it in my life. So I think that stuff is, like, what's cool about country is that it truly is community. Like, you know, I, I can look at, at Jason Aldean's drummer and remember when we would all sit at a bar and we couldn't figure out who was paying the tab. You hoped you could like Irish ghost it quickly. You'd be like, Hey, yeah, bye. And uh, you hoped you wouldn't get stuck with it. Like, I think for so many of us, we grew up on these gigs together that the sense of community is, is part correct. of what makes it great. Um, and quickly, Chris Stapleton is just better oh, than ever. Chris Stapleton. Stapleton. Yeah. Stapleton. We, uh, so good. Fit. Story time wow. with me here at this point, but we, um, yes, I'm loving it. We did a Grammy show for, Lionel Richie and Lionel Richie wrote a lady for Kenny Rogers. And so Chris Stapleton was singing lady. And I was standing with little big town on one side of me and Dave Grohl on the other. And Dave Grohl looks at me as Chris Stapleton is singing. And he says, this guy is an effing rock star. When Dave Grohl says that, then you have achieved yeah. like all time rock star status. So that yeah. checks. <laughs> yeah. Stapleton's a God. Wow. So, so I mean, you're, you're living the dream. You're, you're at the top. I mean, you're doing all this crazy stuff. You're in Nashville, you're touring. I mean, it's nuts. It's absolutely insane. And then you decide to go to sports? Like, what the heck happened? How did that go about? And what were you thinking, man? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I asked myself that about three times. No, I'm kidding. Um, so for me, our busiest year, uh, we were on the road 300 days. And so we were on the road 300 days to play 225 shows. Um, and that was back-to-back years where we were gone basically 300 days. And I looked around and thought, you know what? 
like the money isn't what people think it is in music. So it's not like for most of us, you can ever just look at it and say, hey, if I survive these next three years, then I can just take the rest of my life off. So I knew that that like a couple of things, you know, the music business isn't particularly sustainable and you know that like your career is going to have these wild ups and downs. And there's a, a country band named Maddie and Tay and um, they're the sweetest girls in the world, but they had just put out a song called girl in a country song. And uh, I had like three days off and I had a buddy that had done their record for him. And so he was like, Hey, they're playing like the today show and the tonight show and all these, like, can you come do these shows, play the fiddle parts on them? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Maddie and Tay at the time was like, Hey, if you ever want to leave the band Perry, like we're growing. And I looked around and I was like, man, I don't, is that my life? Like every five years, am I going to link up to something new every 10 years? I, and, and I just got to the point where my job, and I think, Mac, Mac, you'll you'll appreciate this as an offensive lineman. My job every night was to execute a perfect show. Like that was it. Like for me, you know, running six instruments and I ran all our tracks. So like anytime there were drum loops on anything, like I had keyboards to hit all these things. I would end a show. I didn't really care whether the crowd liked it or not. That wasn't my job. My job was did I execute this show absolutely perfectly? And I, I think especially with the classical music background, like uh, the reason I relate so well with athletes is like I sacrificed everything I knew in my life, my entire life growing up for everything to get to this point where you've made it. And when you've made it, you have this camaraderie and this bond for this brief moment right. of time where everything's amazing. But the whole time you got to be thinking, OK, where am I going? Like and, and for me, I got to the point where I remember I would text uh, I would text my wife. I would text my friends before shows. I'd always say time to make the donuts, which is uh, from the old Dunkin Donuts commercial. And then after the the show, I would say money earned. And it wasn't that like, I never care about, I've never cared about money. I've been so broke. I couldn't pay my bills. I'm a musician, right? It wasn't about money. It was just my way of saying like, I earned my keep that show. And very much for most, unless you're the lead singer of any project, you're an offensive lineman. So you don't want to be noticed until it is time for you to be noticed. And that's the way that I really took my career every day. And I remember looking around at one point saying, man, I'm thankful for what I do. And I'm really good at what I do. I think there were three full-time touring fiddle players at the time. And there's never wow. been a fiddle player out of Nashville. That was a band. That was a music director. Like I'm the only one. I was really proud of that, but I didn't love it. And so I sat down with a, some friends one day and I was like, I don't love what I do. And a buddy of mine was like, well, if I asked a hundred of your friends, what you really love, what would the answer be? I was like, sports, it's, you know, like, because for me as a kid, sports were my, my release. Like it was the time that I didn't have to focus on like, a, you know, a jacked up family. I didn't have to focus on the, you know, being poor. I didn't have to focus on practicing eight hours a day. I just focused on watching a game and enjoying it. So like, I think for me, there was such a release out of sports that I was like, that's the one thing I love. And so I literally got on Facebook at the time. This is before podcasts were a thing. I got on Facebook and I did a, like a, tiny 10 minute podcast where I just talked about sports and my friends were like, this is like sitting on a bus with you. It's obnoxious, but entertaining all at once. So I ripped it apart. I wrote a business plan and I figured out, okay, what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? Who are my influences? What do I want to sound like? And I started a podcast where I talked to musicians about athletes or about sports and sports guys about music. And I tried to do something different where, but I still took what I could figure out. Like I listened to so much sports talk radio. I figured out that the clock in an hour runs 12 minutes on the first. Set. Like I figured all this stuff out. I built templates. I made a really pro sounding show and I put in like mock ads. And I was like, I want to make an entertaining demo every week. And for me, that fed my soul from, from day one. So I, I started that podcast. I grew that podcast from the ground up and 
Uh, I have a buddy, Sean Wyman at ESPN that uh, we met through mutual friends and he was like, I'll give you notes if you want. And he gave me three pages of notes. And two days later, I, I said, here's this week's episode. Tell me what you think. And he called and said, I've never had anybody take every note. And you took in two days, you took three pages of notes. I'm like, well, that's a classical musician. in me. Like I'm, I'm coachable. Right. So he said, I think you have a future here. Like I want to introduce you to people. And that started the the long trajectory, but I, long it's been brief compared to what a lot of people have dealt with but i will say this when i got the call to do my first show on espnu uh college football live college football daily which one do i do now i don't know the one that's on espnu uh and it was me michael Lee jr and elika sadegi and when i got the call to do that they wanted me for you know 10 mondays max um could fire me after one show if for anyone that doesn't know the business it's called a usage deal and uh so they offered me a usage deal and I think it was like I, I, it was my total I could make out of this entire usage deal for radio and TV. If everything went swimmingly, it was going to be like twelve thousand bucks. So it's like, hey, here you go. This is a usage deal. So I went to the band at the time we were about to put out a new single. And I was like, hey, can I get these Mondays? I'm going to take some time and do that. And everybody was in support of it at first. And then two weeks before that changed. And they were like, hey, I don't think we're comfortable with you not being available on these days. And so wow. I, I was like, all right, I quit. Oh and I quit with no idea how I was going to pay my bills, what I was going to do, or if I was going to make it and not enough in the bank to be like, I don't have to work for a year. It was just like one of those, if ESPN offers you a show and you don't take it, you'll what, never what get that offer. Yeah, what like, year I is this right camera now? test. I didn't. Wow. 2016. Oh so it was 2016. So my last, my last show with the band was the uh, Alaska state fair at the end of August wow. in 2016. That was on a Saturday on Monday. I showed up in Charlotte at ESPNU Five minutes before we went live, they handed me a rundown. James Dunn was the producer of that show. I feel for him at this point. Dunn handed me a, a rundown. He said, here's your rundown. Five minutes before we're live. And I said, cool, what's a rundown? I, I, I'd never seen one. I'd never experienced. I had no idea. And he's like, oh, my God. Uh, the, the thing that really helped me was that I'm used to people talking in my ears during a concert. Like, that's normal. And so yeah. he was like, I will talk through. I will talk you through every line of this. And that, that was my first. I had, y'all, I had two phones. Uh, two iPads and a laptop on stage because I was so afraid that Mike Golick Jr., who I'd watched on ESPN, was going to list some backup running back right. from USC that, that I didn't know. And I'm like, what do we do? I was, I was scared to death, but I was lucky. It went well. And, uh, you know, that right after I quit the band, I got offered a local Nashville, a tiny, tiny radio gig that paid less than Starbucks would. But they were like, hey, you want to be on the morning show? And I was like, yes. So within two weeks of leaving the band, I, I had a tiny radio gig and I had an ESPN gig and then that grew. So 2018, I went full time with the ESPN and been there. Wow. Since. Incredible. That that's unreal. I mean, I've never, ever heard a story like this fits. And I'm, I'm sure you realize that like, this is super unique. I'm, I'm curious what advice, I mean, I think this story really sells itself in terms of advice, but if someone came to you and said, I want to reinvent myself, I've been doing this career for 10 years, maybe 15 years. I mean, since you were a kid, so probably longer. And I just don't love it anymore. I'm burned out. I want to reinvent myself. You are an example that it's worth it. But what's your advice there? Like, why would you do it? How would you do it? Yeah. So, by the way, when I first interviewed at ESPN, they were like, what if you burn out from sports, too? And I was like, well, y'all, I've been doing this for th I, I did music for 30 years. So if y'all get 30 years out of me, you're going to be kicking That's a big me win. Oh, That's a big win. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a, a friend that I'll name name drop that nobody knows his name, but I just want to give him credit. Rob Baker. Um, Rob Baker was my entertainment attorney in Nashville for years when I was a musician. 
And Rob had a really successful entertainment attorney practice. And he quit that practice one day and decided he was going to be Brett Eldridge's manager when everybody else in Nashville had, had passed on Brett Eldridge oh, 20 times. And Brett hadn't made a dime. And everybody that knew him said he was crazy. And, you know, Rob has been one of my closest friends for years. And so when I first started telling people that I wanted to go into sports talk, I got laughed at by everybody. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, even though I was a fat kid that played the violin growing up, I, I'm not that thick skinned. You do sit there and you're like, my God, am I, have I lost my damn mind? And um, by the way, many of the people that laughed at me that are still on the road now constantly text me. And they're like, how did you do it? How can I get off the road? Um, but <laughs> I sat down with Rob and I said, this is going to sound stupid to you, but I want to get into sports talk. And I'll never forget this conversation. We were at a place called Frothy Monkey in Nashville. And Rob was like, A, I'm not going to laugh at you because all you ever talk about is sports. B, always remember when you've accomplished anything that most people find to be successful, you can leverage that into whatever you want. And he's like, whether it's you are a great police officer in a big city and now you want to move somewhere else and use that, when you've had jobs that people look at and say, okay, we normalize whatever we do, right? And and that's that's just fact. In Nashville, I was just a guy with a good gig, right? But to most of the country, I was part of a band that had the at the time the fourth biggest song of all time in country music. Like the 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 I had to break through the misnomer with ESPN from day one that they thought I was making seven figures a year and they couldn't match that. And I'm like, well, <laughs> guess what? Joke's on you. And then the other part of it is like, why would you want to leave this? You have to understand though that that, that if you're on the top of a mountain and you want to jump to another mountain you are starting so far ahead of everybody else. And that's what I think people, people get so worried about jumping off and then sliding down. And I would challenge that if you jump off, if you're willing to admit what you don't know and you're willing to take the coaching along the way, I think that's, that's powerful. And I, I was watching on a flight a few months ago, I was watching one of these, uh, I don't know, I think it's called Wall Street, but it's like uh, Mark Wahlberg launched like 27 businesses and it was how he went through that process. And one of his business advisors was talking about the fact that Mark's made a lot of mistakes, but he'll always stand up and say, how do I learn from it? What do I do better? How, how can I get better at this? How can I learn everything? Like respect what you don't know. And for me, I came into this from day one saying, teach me, like coach me, let me be great at it. And I'll handle the work. Like that's the, the one variable we all control is work. So like when kids come to me and say, I want to be in sports media in today's world, cool, do it now. Like, Make right. content and, and don't worry about the numbers. Like I, I did a podcast that had Charlie Daniels, Peter King and fallout boy in the same podcast. And I was so proud of that thing. Like I have 40,000 listens in the first couple of days. I was like, I am crushing the game. This is great. So the next week I was like, I'm not going to have a guest this week because I don't need it. I got all this momentum. I had 40,000 listens last uh, in the first two days last time. Uh, that second episode, that next episode had 12 listens total. Well, and I went in and still did an episode the next week. And for me, when I said I was going to do a podcast, I, I meant it. And one of the things when my podcast started to get noticed by everybody that I got asked is, how'd you manage it? Because I took a road setup with me everywhere and I pre-taped and wow. I did segments and like I put up a show every single week for a year and a half. And I don't care who listened to it. My thing was like, A, 
Every week, I got to be proud of what I put out. Every week is my demo to get better at what I do. I can't apologize for it. I tell music kids all the time, don't hand your demo off and be like, I just need to fix the vocals. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to be in the room. So I needed to make something I could be proud of, not apologize for, that represented me every single week. And I didn't need 100,000 listens. I needed one. I needed the right person to listen and take a chance on me. And I think in today's world, so many people are looking for get, get famous now. I would argue, like, worry about getting great and then let the rest of the stuff take care of itself. Like, I, I, it's a constant work on your craft. So I, that, that, to me, like, use your leverage, use your relationships, and, uh, and then and the work from there. And the one other thing I would say quickly, not that anything's quick for me, is uh, I think Emac can attest to this. Like, I give a damn about relationships in a big, big way. And that's, that's benefit of the doubt. Like, if you walk into me, and you don't know me, and you hand me a CD, and you say, hey, I'm a songwriter. I think your song sucks. That's just the way it's going to go. Like, I get handed songs all the time. Your song sucks. If we get coffee for a year, and, like, we just hang out, and we become friends, and it's like, man, what you up to? Well, I, you know, I've been working on some songs with people. Oh, man, I'd love to hear it. Now I'm listening to everything with loving ears. And that's such a, a real difference. And I'm not saying invest in people because it helps you in the end. I'm saying invest in people because if you invest in people, you're doing the right thing. And by, uh, there's a byproduct of that that helps you in the end. I never once auditioned for a single gig I got in my life. It all came from people wow. that knew me. And they were like, hey, he's like, even at ESPN, I've never done a screen test. I've never done an, an early test for anything. Like, I've never had to go in and be like, hey, I said for a long time in music, if you tell me I'm going to have to play for my supper, I'm going to be fine. I'll eat. I'll make sure I find a way to do it. But I never had to prove that because at the end of the day, relationships are what really move the world. So, you know, that that's the other thing I would say. No question about that, man. I love that. I love that. And I think it's it's been, you know, cool to see from from afar. I mean, obviously, you know, we do very different things, but there is some crossover. And, you know, just to see that, how intentional you are about it and to see how following up with things and, and just checking on people. I mean, it's, it's something that I also try to do. And I think it, it goes a long way with people because I think we can get so caught up in this space where, you know, if you just worry about yourself, that's a lot to deal with, but you can miss so many relationships, so many opportunities just to connect with people that, man, we're, we're at a cool place. And there's a lot of different people, a lot of cool people that are on camera that are off camera that, you know, you can make a lot of cool acquaintances and friends. And so that's, that's really cool to, to kind of hear that as we're doing kind of a transition here, you've done some awesome things with the company, with ESPN, you've covered Super Bowls, you've covered the draft multiple times, playoff selection shows, games, all these different things. Ha- has there been a favorite or this moment where you're looking around, and you're like, how the heck did I get here? How the heck am I doing this right now? So I've got two favorites. Um, for very different reasons. The NFL draft is life for me. I love it because my favorite sport to cover is college football <laughs> by far. My favorite sport to watch is the NFL. And for anyone that's ever watched my work on college football, I don't have a root. I, I don't care who wins. I, I've never had a favorite college football team. So it's great because you all think that I hate you every single week and I'm indifferent, which is even better. But on Sundays, my life revolves around the Raiders. So bringing those two worlds together for the draft is, is particularly special. If I had to say any one like, oh my God, I've made it moment. The first time I stood on the sideline of a national championship game and you see what it means to the fans that are in there. You see what it means. Like just, just being able, the access that we get because of ESPN to that particular game, like every year that I've been on a sideline of a national championship game, which I'm lucky to have done multiple times now, 
I always take that second and I just like take a knee on the grass and just feel the grass. Cause like it, there's something different. It hits, it hits wildly different when you know you're at that event. And when you know what's at stake for that event and the, the fandom that's around it, like the pomp and circumstance, college football is untouchable. And the, the sense that comes when you win a national championship, like standing next to Gojo when the confetti cannons accidentally went off behind us that we didn't know were behind us when Georgia won the national champion or when Alabama won the national championship over Georgia a few years ago in the Georgia, like in the Mercedes Benz stadium. Like that was such a moment of like, I, I think I tinkled myself a little bit. Didn't know the cannon was right there. It was, but like, it's unforgettable, you know, and just watching the confetti fall on everybody. It's, it's uh, that particular night. I had done a digital show for us that I do a lot. And then I'd also done sports center on Snapchat. I was doing from the field. So as the confetti was falling, I was just sitting in it doing a sports center hit. And I'm like, this is the wildest life ever. So yeah, I, I'm, that's what I always think of. I love that. I love that. I mean, being at national championships, Mac, Mac played in one. Uh, we won't talk about that outcome, but still incredible that he got to do that. And uh, we've also been to a few, but I want to ask you about college football in general. I mean, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty of the sport that we all love, as you just talked about. It's going through a lot. It's going through perhaps... It is changing like you. It's going from country music to sports. I mean, there's, there's a lot changing with college football. How would you describe the state of college football right now? I am so happy for everybody that is getting theirs. And I think what has to happen sometimes is you have to remember not where you've been, but where you're going. And, and for me, uh, a, a country music example of this was Kenny Rogers telling me that when he put out his first country record, people complained that he wasn't country. Like, no, he came from a rock band. He's a country guy. He's not, he, he's not a country guy. He's a rock guy. He's a, he's a pop artist. And then he's putting out these songs, and now he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And, you know, Garth talked about how when he first started touring, people were resistant to the way he put on a show because that's not country. And while Florida Georgia Line may not be my favorite thing in the entire world, I hear this constant, like, well, that's not country. Like, <laughs> It is. And that's what country does. Country evolves into the storytelling that represents a generation, just like college football evolves. And that's what we're seeing right now. And for me, when you're in a state of evolution, A, look at the opportunity for everybody, which I think is stinking incredible. And B, importantly, look at the, the leaders and ask, ask yourself, how are the leaders going to take advantage of that opportunity? Like, I am all in on name, image, likeness. I use this example a lot on ESPN, but I was offered a full ride as a violin kid to Indiana. And at the time, Indiana had one of the best classical music violin departments in the world. They had a great teacher. And if I had gone to that school, I would have had the best teaching in the best facilities with the best instruments, with the best opportunities. And at the same time, I could have taken all the orchestra gigs I wanted on the side, charged more for those orchestra gigs because I was part of the Indiana program. I could have charged more for lessons. I could have turned around, taught little kids for triple the rate of anybody else simply because I had Indiana on the name. We have let kids on full scholarships and other opportunities capitalize on their name, image, likeness for generations. So we know how to do it. Now all we have to do is decide that instead of worrying about what college football used to be and instead of worrying about holding back these kids that are getting an opportunity, look around and say, what's the landscape and how do we navigate it the best way possible? Yeah. That's what the best programs are going to do. And I get it. College football fans hate change because college football is about tradition. But change is coming whether you want it to or not. So I think it's an exciting opportunity for college football to come out of it with the rebirth, deciding on how it's going to better represent players 
characters in the future. And at the end of the day, I think we would all want that for our kids. So, like, I think there's an opportunity for college football right now that's that's being sullied by some, you know, sullen people. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And, and you know, change is so difficult, right? Because you, you've done something a certain way. It's It's been successful. It's worked. Why, why are we doing something different? But it, it needed to. And, and I think that, you know, that there's certainly these examples where maybe it's gone a little too far one way or, or the other. And, you know, we, we do need some rules and get this thing going in the right direction. But, you know, what ultimately is that going to look like? So I want to ask you this. We've asked a couple of people this. In the next 10 years, do you foresee a super conference, one league, and maybe it's another division? Maybe it's like a, a division A where it's very NFL minor league-ish. Do you foresee that happening? I I think that's a great conversation, and I don't think it's going to happen. And yeah. I know a lot of people do think it's going to happen, but look, I'm not smart enough to be an attorney. Uh, but I am smart enough to have a basic understanding of collusion as a principle. So if a bunch of schools want to turn around and say, hey, we're going to create our own super conference and we're not going to be involved in name, image, likeness, that at its core is the very <laughs> definition of collusion coming together to prevent opportunity. The courts are going to strike that down. And I think that's a part of this that we haven't given enough credence to. This isn't about what you or I want. This is about what the courts have said is legal or not legal. And once that that toothpaste is out of the tube, mm-hmm. I don't think you can put it back. So if if the federal government wants to step in and make one federal policy, that might help the process. But far more likely than that, you know, with 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 no discredit to our 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 great employer, I think playoff expansion is coming and a bunch of TV partners are going to be involved in it. And there's going to be so much stinking money. Everybody's going to want it. Mm. I, I cannot disagree. I cannot disagree. That's probably the future there. Mac, before we get to our rapid fire questions with the ACC, I just want to add this in because I know Fitz said he's a huge Raiders fan. And I love that story about growing up watching the Raiders with your dad. We've had Hunter Renfro on the pod. Mac played with Hunter Renfro. When Mac first met Hunter Renfro, he thought he was a manager. We told this story on the podcast. Mac actually told it to Renfro's face. It was amazing. What, what, what was your first thought as a big NFL draft guy when the Raiders drafted Renfro? And what are your thoughts on Renfro now playing for your beloved, your beloved Raiders? Uh, okay. E-Man, we're going to have to have a conversation <laughs> offline about why I'm not looking at a Renfro jersey hanging up in my studio here. Like, I mean, I don't know what we're doing or what you've been busy with. Look, uh, I, I had just come off. Of, I think all of us that covered college football watched Hunter Renfro make people look stupid. That's what he does. Like he just makes people look dumb because he is so talented at what he does. And Hunter Renfro was the ultimate, like, I don't care about measurables sort of person. And I think there is, we put too much weight in the NFL draft process on the interview process because Emacs feelings about the way Hunter Renfro looks, I think plays into the mind of a coach or GM that's like, that guy? You want me to draft that guy? I, I think that he right now is the top three slot receiver in the NFL. I think the Raiders are going to uh, pay him wildly very soon. Um, in fact, you know, this is just my opinion. I don't have inside knowledge, but uh, I think the Raiders are going to be at a crossroads between Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro after this season. And for that reason, I think the money goes to Renfro and not to Waller uh, because if you're Josh McDaniels and you're looking around at the way you build your offense, having that slot wide receiver worked really well for him in New England. Renfro has the ability to play for a very long time also, because not only is he slick when it comes to getting open, he reminds me in this sense of Tim Brown, he he avoids heavy contact all yeah. over the place. I, I think Renfro's an absolute star. The Raiders are going to have a top, top three or four offense in the NFL this year. 
and and you know and Derek Carr to Hunter Renfro has become such a a, a great connection. Man, it that that's real and. Uh, by the way, Emac, you know, just uh, I'll shoot you my address. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be game worn. If it is, that's fine. It just depends on what, you know, but uh, no, I think I think Renfro is about to get paid, which is what I think. we. No, I, I, I love what you just brought up there, because I think, honestly, one of his best attributes now that he's in the league is the fact that he doesn't get hit. He does not take hits and he's able to get down. He sees contact coming. And I think longevity wise, that's going to help him so much and, and so i love that we'll, we'll see what we can do on the jersey front i'll do my best uh, and by the way like this is not a new like uh, for the nfl draft i pitched hey let me get a tattoo with max crosby and we'll talk about life which we did for wow. the draft so we spent four hours in the chair i got the nfl draft logo added to my arm he got kill or be killed which is why he's wow. max crosby and i'm me um but you know max in that it, you know i mentioned to him that i tried everywhere all over town to to find a max crosby jersey I could buy and they are literally sold out all over Vegas. You can't get them anywhere. And he's like, I'll send you one. Still don't have it. Max, so, you know, I'm, I know I'm just listening to this. Ma- get him the Jersey. Let's go. Yeah. yeah let's, let's talk, Max. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Just text me. Text me. Man, th- this has been a lot of fun. All right. We're going to wrap up here with some rapid fire and, and stick to the ACC. We're looking just at the, the conference here right now. Uh, I know you cover them in, in some detail. So let's start with the easy one, kind of a softball, if you will. Give me your best quarterback in the ACC going into 22. Now that's Hartman. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a real question either. I'm all in. I'm all in on Hartman. And it's funny because I actually, I was so all in on Hartman last year that at one point I was angry texting Todd McShay about his quarterback <laughs> rankings because I don't think, you know, I don't really care about height or, you know, what, what it, they, McShay's a big believer in like when you, when the ball is delivered. So he's out on some things for Hartman for delivering late. And I'm like, I, I don't care what you say. That being said, we always blame poor play on the players and never on the coaches. I, I think USC's fail has been their coaches and Keaton Slovis is a delightful player, by the way. I think he is going to have a great year, and he has the best hair. So, like, I got to be all. In <laughs> hey, he's got to keep. He's got to keep the standard that Kenny Pickett, uh, you know, laid the foundation there. Pitt, Keaton Slovis, going to be kind of next man up. Yeah, and if Addison was still, if Addison was still a Pitt, uh, not to make anybody angry, I'd be all in on Keaton. I hear that. I, I think that's a great pick. I, I love the pick of Sam Hartman. I mean, a guy that had fifty touchdowns. There's only been two other guys ever do that. Uh, one's won the NFL MVP. I think the other might by the time he's done, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson. So, all right, how about the best defense in the ACC? We make things too complicated. It's still Clemson. <laughs> like, and I think I went back actually last month because I don't have a life. And I started rewatching a bunch of Clemson games. And it's amazing. And I was one of the people that did it. It's amazing how I sat on air every Saturday saying, this team is not good. And then you watch them and you're like, this team had really poor quarterback play, which happens sometimes like sometimes young guys develop at different levels I feel like Clemson is about to do some nasty things to a lot of teams because they got a year of bonus time for young players to go in and get better throughout the course of the year like I I'm looking at that Clemson defense thinking like I I, it's going to be hard for me as great as the offenses are in the ACC which is also another like I go off on this but we we look at the big 12 and the offense is being great and we don't sit there and make it a reason why defense stinks for the big 12 the way we should like in the SEC the same way we forgive that. Like I think Clemson, even if the numbers don't bear out early in the season because of the high powered offenses, Clemson's going to be the by far the best defense. Mm-hmm. Well said, Fitz. I think you're going to endear yourself to some of our Clemson listeners there. Okay, let's let's make some predictions. I know it's only the beginning of June, but I promise you we will hold you to these. Okay, who is going to win 
the Coastal. Now that the ACC still has divisions, maybe for the last time, who knows? Who's going to win the Coastal? Well, okay, so... This is where things get a little complicated, right? Like, so we can all look at, like, I'm, I'm, I'm good on Clemson on one side. Like, we can all say that on one side. Uh, this whole Pitt-Miami thing is really difficult for me to figure out because I want to give a lot of weight to Cristobal. I, I really do. Like, A, the transfer portal helps you rebuild more quickly, but also Cristobal is just, he's talented. And again, I think we put too much emphasis on the players sometimes in life and not enough on how bad a job Manny Diaz did like it's just he was not it, that was not a disciplined or well-coached team in my opinion so I think they get better just by adding crystal ball so I, mm, mm, I'm gonna mm, I'm gonna go Miami I think I'm gonna go okay Miami. With you I like I it. like it I like I, it it's uh, really been Miami or Pitt has for our guests and because it's the coastal it's probably gonna be someone else but anyway um okay what about the Atlantic are you going Clemson yeah I'm going Clemson I don't think there's much okay it's funny because our last three guests, Mac, have gone NC State. All have been the Wolfpack. Uh, I, look, the NC State's defense last year was better than anybody expected. And when you're better than anybody expected, you get extra benefit of the doubt going in the mm. next year. That's just the way we do it. Yeah. So, like, I feel like the most over-talked about ACC unit going into this season is going to be the NC State defense because of what they did at times last year. I, I just, there's more talent on the Clemson. Like, talent matters, right? Right. There's yeah. more talent and there's more proof of concept in the greatness of the coaching at Clemson. Like, I think we are overvaluing NC State last year and undervaluing Clemson because of last year. And that's why it's all been flipped. OK, plus we It'd just like a sexy new story who played. It'd be awesome to see him play somewhere. I don't know. Death Valley. That'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be awesome if they could play twice if we didn't have divisions. But oh, anyway, OK, so you have a Miami Clemson ACC title. Who wins it? Oh, Clemson does. I, I think Clemson okay. is back in the college football playoff this year. There you that's, go. That's, you know, I, I asking two, two years of what we saw last year. Also, there's this like Stephen A moment for a lot of us where we yell mm. something early in the season and then we just don't acknowledge it late in the season. Like, why is we were yelling so much about why there was going to be greatness sustained at the quarterback position for Clemson for the next three years because of DJ, right? Like this, we, we got tutorials on how to properly say Uyunglele, right? Like this was such a big portion of our life. It's just funny how one bad year and, and it was a bad year. It, it was, there's no doubt it was one bad year and we're suddenly out on players completely. I'm not willing to do that. Like we talk about how a player has a bad year and they hit the transfer portal. We talk about how a, a unit has a bad year and, and everybody wants to quit. I think we quit on teams too easily in college football. I'm not betting against Clemson going into this year. There you go. Easy enough. Fitz, this was a ton of fun, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you're going to be all over the place leading into football, but we can't wait to watch, man. Thanks again. I'm just happy I had to hang out with you guys. Thanks for having me. Wow, KG. I mean, that that was a lot of fun. I, I didn't think, I knew there was a possibility. I didn't know that we were going to go so heavy into the music stuff, but it's so interesting. I don't I know why I didn't it. think that. It's so interesting, and I've never met anybody that has done that, that has gone from being a prodigy, from being making it, like making it mm -hmm. in Nashville, touring, to saying, eh, I want to do something else. I'm going to go to sports, which is 375, which is 
every hour. I said 375 people. We never stop working. We work extra days. 10 extra days. And it, it's it's bonkers. You don't get weekends. You don't get holidays, which I'm sure music is very similar. I've never oh, yeah. been on tour. Um, but he left all of that to go do this, which it just goes to show you how special this world is. But KG, I loved what you asked him. Who was your like top performer? Who's your top show? This and that. So I've got to know. I, I didn't tell you about this. This is right off the dome. Your top three just artists. I, I don't know if you've Ooh. been to a bunch of concerts. I don't know if you've been to whatever. But just give me your top three. Kelly's Mount Rushmore, if you will. Three names. Go. Okay. I'm going to do the ones that I've seen live. Because. I like that. Th I know about. Because I've been there. So, uh, for me, number one was Taylor Swift. I've been to two of her concerts. Her concerts are amazing, Mac. Her concerts are incredible. The 1989 tour, <laughs> I saw her in Chicago at Soldier Field. Wow. It was amazing. That's she cool. She literally played the whole album. I, I don't know many artists that played the whole album, and uh, that's her best album, in my opinion. George Strait, I saw his farewell tour at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. That Man. was incredible. <laughs> Just his catalog of hits, and I mean, he's George freaking straight. Come on. And then number three is actually someone I saw recently, because I was just so impressed with the show, and it was Kenny Chesney. <laughs> he, he was unreal. Uh, he just, I mean, he played 30 songs and just kept going, and I don't, I think he's like 55 years old. He just kept going. It was uh, unreal, and he has so many incredible hits. So I'm going to go with those three, Taylor, George, and Kenny. I love that. It's hard to beat. I, I love that. I will tell you one person you need to go and see if you, if you haven't, or if you have, I'm sorry that it's not on your top three. It's unbelievable. Shania Twain. She oh, I would love to so see fun. Shania. She is so fun in concert. She does a great job, and I mean, she's, I'm not calling oh, anybody old. That. I'm not calling anybody old, but she is not young. She's older. And she was a rock star. I mean, I'm talking like two plus hours straight of oh, just awesome. bangers. And uh, there was one point she's like <laughs> floating through the crowd on a guitar case. I was just like, hey, hi, how are you? It was crazy. She was is really literally fun. the precursor to Taylor. I yeah. mean, she she walked so Taylor could run. Exactly. So I'm so exactly. in on that. And, and I got to tell you, when um, you know the, the one famous song comes on and it's just like, dun, 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 and then it stops. Yeah. And everybody's yeah, just man. like, oh my God. It was so fun. It was so much fun. So love that. You've got to go to Shania Twain. Um, it, you know, I feel like a woman, whatever. Here we go. Okay. So our guest, Jason Fitz, so much fun. Love that guy. So much to unpack. Um, he's just, I, I love his outlook on things. It was a little bit different yeah. from some of our other guests with just on, on kind of a little bit aligned with Gojo, but just kind of how this world is moving for college football and I thought it was refreshing. I really enjoyed having him mm -hmm. on. Totally agree. He's he's a star. And I thought his his takes were very well thought out and like he had put time into them. And I also liked what he told our listeners and even us, but the advice of reinventing yourself. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Life's too short to just keep doing something that you feel like you're not thoroughly enjoying or it's not giving you the life you want. Or if you want to move on, you gotta take that leap. That's and right. he did it. I mean, to go from what was he, the only musical director that was a fiddle player or something like that? Unreal. And then he said, look, I want to do something else. And people <laughs> thought he was insane. And now he has more work-life balance and he's loving it. So good for him. And that was inspiring to see a guy who had truly made it say, you know what? I'm going to try something else and reinvent myself. Yeah. And to, for a guy that, again, I'm doing research and it's hard to find research on him. So he, he's very kind of private. It was cool for him to kind of, you know, pull back the curtain a little for us, but there needs to be a book about this guy, a movie. I mean, oh, honestly, yeah. the transition that he made and, and the 
playing, you know, piano, violin for eight hours a day to then moving on to I'm going to sing to I'm going to be in a band to I can play the fiddle and direct music to uh, I'm going to go to sports. I mean, it, it's yeah, crazy. What? It's absolutely Unreal. crazy. So big shout out, Jason. Thank you for joining us. But guys, that's it. Another great episode. Gramlich and MacLean. If you don't have Sirius XM, guys, go and get it right now. They have an app. You can take it anywhere. It's in your car. It's the best thing on radio. Uh, it, like I said, in your car, on your phone, you've got to check it out. We also need you guys to go to YouTube. I'm looking at you if you're on right now. Go to YouTube, subscribe, like, love, whatever they say it on there. Uh, and then also iTunes. Follow our podcast. Subscribe to our channel. We would greatly appreciate that, guys. But until next time, we'll see you all.